Hi, I'm Jamie Ingram, and my podcast series is going to cover some of the misconceptions that surround autism spectrum disorder and some of the other disorders that tend to be diagnosed in conjunction with autism. This topic is important to me because I'm the parent of two autistic children. My daughter, who's 23 now, had a much different experience when she was diagnosed back in the early 2000s than my nine-year-old son, who was diagnosed in 2016. My nine-year-old has multiple diagnoses that often overlap with autism, including obsessive-compulsive disorder, generalized anxiety, Tourette's, and ADHD. Now, I don't claim to be an expert by any means, even though I'm neurodivergent myself. Autistic individuals often have behaviors that a lot of people find strange or uncomfortable, So I feel like it's important to address some of those things because one in 44 people in the United States are diagnosed with autism. In the coming episodes, I'm going to also address some of the things that autistic self-advocates want people to know. For instance, they are very particular about how they're addressed. And the disability community and people that work with those with disabilities tend to use person-first language, so a person with Down syndrome or a person who is deaf. However, most autistics prefer to be referred to with identity-first language, so an autistic person. There's actually a meme that has gone viral about this. It's, it's a picture of four different people, and the captions on each person says, person with autism, person with gay, person with blind, person with Norwegian. So not on the spectrum, not suffering from autism, not a person with autism, but they are an autistic person. Even subtle connotations and nuances like person first versus identity first language makes a huge difference. Understanding that autism is an inherent part of a person's identity and can't be separated validates and honors an entire community's identity and value. I look forward to talking about this and more on my next episode where I'll talk to Crystalline, another parent and advocate. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Jamie. Thanks for joining us for my second episode. Today, we're going to be talking to my friend, Crystalline, who is also the parent of two autistic children. Thanks for having me on today. I am the mother of two autistic children, and I don't want to speak for autistic people. I'm just here to share what I've learned from being the support person for autistic people. I think what a lot of people fail to realize is that autism spectrum disorder is just that. It's a spectrum, um, which means that support needs will vary from person to person. So can you tell me, are you comfortable telling me a little bit more about both of them? Yeah. My oldest is 13. He is like a hyper verbal child. He started talking very clearly at like one years old, able to express his needs, his wants, feelings even at very young age. His support needs were mostly motor, still are. He's 13 and he still struggles to just do fine motor skills and executive functioning is really hard for him, but he also tests very high in IQ. 
He's the complete opposite of my youngest, who is seven years old, who is mostly non-speaking. She is starting to form words pretty well where other people can understand her, but it's still a struggle. She has a hard time expressing and dealing with her emotions, how her body feels and how it interacts with the world. She has some repetitive, even self-harm behaviors, but she's also the sweetest, kindest, funniest little girl you'll ever meet. She's super affectionate. Uh, she really cares a lot about people and wants everyone to feel good. If she thinks someone's upset or sad or crying, she immediately takes that on and thinks that she's sad too. And she mirrors emotions a lot. You had mentioned a struggle you are having right now with your youngest. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. My youngest child has a tendency to elope where she runs away. She finds an exit and she just heads out on her own. It's quite scary. Many autistic kids do this and I live close to water. It's also a high risk for autistic people to drown. So I've taken this very seriously. I was very scared and immediately just dove in to any research that I could about how to keep her safe. But something I never found was like why she's running away and how to help her communicate better about the proper times to leave and the things we have to do to prepare to leave and all of those. So I did get alarms for my doors and I've made sure that certain things are um, secure, but I also don't want to prevent any fire safety stuff. Like, you know, everybody has to be able to exit quickly if there's a fire. So I don't want to put any intricate locks or where people can't easily access them. So the only like thing to really do to resolve this is to find out why she's doing it. So I would notice that she is communicating to me. She couldn't tell me grandpa's house for some reason. She can say Papa Mike and I didn't understand it. And I kept misunderstanding her. And then finally, I noticed she was just running out the door whenever I would misunderstand these words. So I caught her doing that. And I said, hey, let's put our shoes on. Let's get a bag. These are the things we need to leave. And mom needs her shoes and mom needs her phone. Then we set off. And I realized that she was trying to walk to grandpa's house a few blocks away. Honestly, all of these little trips that we made and using her AAC, her talker, her talking device, just to tell her even the ways that she can tell me really made a huge difference. And our elopement incidents are almost completely gone. I don't want to say that they are gone because then she'll surprise me, but it's really helped a lot just listening and like responding and just accepting those wild requests. Sometimes if you just show them the safe way to do it and what you need to do, then they really are. It's like behavior is communication. And it's really helped my family. And I think um, I've heard so much about elopement issues. One of the best ways to solve that is to just go on the adventure, let the dishes wait till later, you know, turn off the stove and, you know, have sandwiches for dinner instead and just go on an adventure with the kid. And it sucks and things have to be put off sometimes, but it's been um, very helpful for us. I also have two autistic kids. I have my nine-year-old and my 23-year-old. 
So, and it's funny because they've got their similarities and their differences, and they've always been really attached to each other since he was born, my nine-year-old. So I either get the question with him, you know, it's one thing or the other, either, oh, I didn't know he was autistic, or why is your kid acting like that? Like, what, what is he doing? So I want to talk a little bit about some of the things autistics experience or that people look at them like, what are they doing? And I think one of the big ones is stimming. So my nine-year-old flaps. He flaps his hands. He does this thing where while he's flapping, his fingers snap together really loudly. (laughs) Delilah does that too. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And if he finds something funny or if something gets stuck in his head, he will repeat it over and over and over again, which can kind of be explained by multiple diagnoses that he has. So he will jump up and down if he's playing a video game. He has jumped up and down so much that he has like all of my nails and in the walls and the ceiling have started to pop out. So I've got nail pop all over the walls and all over my And he also has some motor and vocal tics. His motor tics, he does a lot. Like he'll blink and he'll look up. Sometimes he'll make a face, which is, that can kind of startle, especially kids. (laughs) Yeah, my son does that, like mouth wide open. Yes. Like just randomly, just full extension of the jaw. Yeah. And Tobias will occasionally get a throat clearing tick. So he'll clear his throat and then that makes his throat hurt. Then he clears his throat more, which makes it even worse. A lot of times too, his tics make it hard to identify illness. What does ticking look like in your house or stemming? Yeah, stemming. So tick for him are like completely involuntary and he doesn't exactly know when he's doing it. Whereas his stems are like an energy in his body that either soothes him or he just does it when he's excited. It can still be subconsciously, but he can also stop it. So like he can stop stemming when he's, you know, he's 13, he's in eighth grade. He doesn't want to be like flapping and stuff in front of his friends all the time. So, I mean, he still does sometimes, but he has had teachers be like you need to stop dancing and sit down because he's bouncing and flapping and uh but his tick are mostly facial um sometimes lately he's been tapping and shaking his leg and he says it's a tick and he doesn't notice he's doing it he doesn't feel it and he is a big kid so like the whole car shake the whole table shakes the whole house shakes whenever he's doing it so their facial ticks are the like mouth really wide and um, it almost looks like it is on purpose and it looks like a silent roar. I don't think he knows he's doing it most of the time. Whereas the stimming, he likes to carry around a string and we literally buy him twine like, and it frays really easily and it's his favorite thing. And my poor vacuum... <laughs> constantly destroyed by it but um he just rocks his hand back and forth watching that go back and forth and it just is so calming to him and um he does the bouncing on the balls of his feet and instead of like the flapping where your hands slap really loud oh his is like very fluid and like wiggly and um I can see how people are like why are you dancing like that the doctor was like he's going to grow out of this by eight or nine and sure enough that's whenever the kids noticed it second third grade they started being like what are you doing because all the other kids who had those stemming behaviors either learned to mask them or grew out of them at that point because maybe there are some typical kids or ADHD kids who do that but um 
for sure, like people had questions and he's still in school with all of those same kids, basically. And they all just accept that he does that and that he's happy and he's excited. We have four kids in eighth grade on our street and they all, he's been outside in the front yard talking to all of his 13 year old friends because they don't play outside anymore. They hang out and he'll be out there stimming with his friends just standing around talking and nobody's like, what are you doing? They just like give him space to stim and he's out there stimming and they're having conversations about who knows what. Can you tell me more about Delilah's stimming? Because I remember when she was little, she would stim vocally and you were like, oh my gosh, (laughs) she's always yelling. Okay. And it was, it was so cute, but I know that you were like, oh my gosh, are people going to think I'm (laughs) an awful parent? (laughs) They really do. So my youngest her vocal stemming is very loud, very high pitched. She sometimes sounds super upset. When this first started, it first started when Delilah was like nine months old. Almost all babies go through this like pterodactyl phase where they like find their loud voice and they every once in a while just like screech like a pterodactyl out loud and it grates your bones, but it's okay because you know it's a baby. It's just going to last a little while so you can laugh it off and be like, that's my pterodactyl baby. It never went away for Delilah. So she would be excited about places we were going and places we were. The library, she would be excited about being in a library and screech like a pterodactyl the whole time we're in a library that's very quiet and everyone's just staring at us and I was like oh my gosh is this gonna be forever and it is <laughs> unfortunately that's all the time we have today thank you so much for being with us Crystalyn. join me next week for the final episode in the series Hey, welcome back to my third and final episode. I am Jamie. I am sick. I sound terrible. And if you can hear the cricket that has found its way into my office, then I apologize, but uh, there's no finding them. Today, we're going to talk about echolalia and pallalalia since I didn't get to that on the last episode. And these may seem pretty straightforward, but in autistics with multiple diagnoses like my son, it can be pretty difficult to figure out what's causing echolalia and pallalalia. If I didn't mention before, my nine-year-old is autistic, but he also has ADHD, the inattentive type. He is not hyperactive. Um, OCD, anxiety, and Tourette syndrome. Many symptoms of all of these disorders overlap. Echolalia comes in two forms, immediate and delayed. Immediate echolalia is when words are repeated immediately after the speaker says them. Um, It used to be thought that immediate echolalia was a sign of inattention and lack of engagement, but it can actually be considered a sign that the person is listening and engaged. Amethyst from the web series Ask an Autistic points out that echolalia can give an autistic time to process what was said to them and even help them remember what was said or asked while they formulate a response. Echolalia can also be used as a verbal stim. Um, Some words are fun to say um, or they're funny. So, for instance, when my son was younger, he used to think that the word tuba was hysterical, and he would stretch it out really long, and he would just yell it out, and he thought that that was so funny. 
Delayed echolalia can also be misunderstood by people who are not autistic. It's when a person repeats words or phrases hours, days, months, or years after they were originally spoken. Um, because of this, the person listening may not understand what the speaker is trying to say or even what they're talking about, or it may not be recognized as echolalia at all. Delayed echolalia is also referred to as scripting. Polylalia is when a speaker repeats their own words instead of someone else's. Um, often it's the last few words of a sentence, and when it's repeated, it decreases in volume, um, or it can even be whispered. A lot, of, in my experience, it is whispered. For example, my son said the other night, Can we watch a movie tonight? Movie tonight. So you may have even heard this before and not realized what it was. Certain words or sounds in words can trigger palilalia as well, but it's important to remember that no two autistic people are the same. Um, these symptoms can look different from person to person, but now that you're informed about some of the things that autistics may do that seem strange or even startling to some people, um, you'll be able to identify and understand what's happening when you see it. That is all the time I have for today. Thank you for joining me for this series. If you want to know more about autism or want to become an advocate, you can check out ASAN, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, at autisticadvocacy.org, or also A4A, which is Autistics for Autistics, at aimingforacceptance.com. And don't forget, Autism Speaks is absolute garbage and harmful to the autistic community, so never, ever, ever support them. Okay, thanks. Bye.